So what we've seen um, certainly over the last five years is that there's been a real decline in global stability, uh, and that's actually weighed on the global average score. So normally you would expect to see convergence and development in emerging markets to push cities up the ranking. But what we're actually seeing is that because there's been uh, you know, civil unrest in, in North America, there's been um, you know, active terrorism um, around the world in, in Europe and, and uh, France and Tunisia. Uh, we've also seen, obviously, um, civil war and war outbreak, wars break out in Eastern Europe and, and the Middle East and North Africa. And there's even been an unrest in Hong Kong. And these are all weighing on, on the global stability score. And what we're seeing is that, you know, there seems to be a, a sense that, you know, there's a, a, a potentially greater level of discontent globally. And, and that's, that's really been sort of weighing on the global score. These and other findings are the result of a new report from The Economist on the livability of cities around the world. I spoke with the editor of the report to learn more about its history and which criteria were used to compare cities with enormous differences not only in geography and infrastructure, but also in culture and language. My name's John Copestoke. Um, I'm the uh, editor of the Global Livability Survey at the Economist's Intelligence Unit, based in London. So the report's been going for um, probably more than a decade now, although in its most recent form it's probably been going for about eight years. Um, and it's a, a city comparison report uh, looking at uh, addressing you know, day-to-day living conditions, um, challenges that people might encounter in their life for uh, 140 cities worldwide. We measure um, around 40 or more indicators as part of this survey. Uh, we have correspondence based in each city, and those correspondents, um, you know, they score a number, of, a number of indicators. We then use qualitative sources to, to vet those scores. Um, we have a scoring system where one is ideal and five is intolerable. Um, and then these are all uh, weighted um, between uh, the categories of stability, healthcare, cultural environment, education, and infrastructure. And we then come up with a score where um, you know, uh, zero is intolerable and, and 100 is perfect. Um, within that, we also categorize so that any score over 80 is seen as ideal, any score of 70 to 80 is um, you know, some challenges, and, and that goes down to any, any score below 50 is where you, know, you would encounter um, significant challenges to your lifestyle. Melbourne uh, came out top again. Uh, I think that's the fifth year running for Melbourne, uh, followed by Vienna, uh, then Vancouver, which until five years ago was in first place. Uh, then Toronto, Adelaide, Calgary, Sydney, Perth, Auckland, and Helsinki. Seoul was given the surprising rank of 58, one spot behind number 57, Detroit, Michigan. Other large cities around the world also appeared lower than you might imagine. Places like London or New York or even Seoul or Tokyo, they tend to be victims of their own success in, in our view. They do... They still score in the top tier of livability, they're in the top category of livability, but they actually have, because they attract so many people, their infrastructure might get overburdened, they might have higher crime rates, they might be targeted by terrorists more, as obviously people in Paris have been uh, more recently, and New York and London and Madrid as well over the last few decades. Um, So uh, these cities tend to be victims of their own success, and that means that even though they're still very livable cities and they're in the top tier of livability, they can't break into that very top, top, Cities that tend to do best, uh, in our view, tend to be cities in, um, uh, in large countries with, with low population densities, but big distances to travel, uh, and the cities that tend to be mid-sized cities rather than super-large cities. 
Um, these cities do well largely because, you know, if, if it's a big country, they have to have a strong transport infrastructure, good telecommunications and, and regional links. But then if they're in medium to city-sized cities, they're not overburdened. Their transport infrastructure isn't overburdened. Um, the, you know, they don't have traffic jams, etc., or as many traffic jams. Uh, and then on top of that, they do still offer plenty of cultural availability. Um, so as a result, we find that um, Australian and Canadian cities do very well. Um, they make up the, the bulk of the top ten. For anyone who's been to Seoul, one of the problems residents face is pretty obvious, as traffic can add hours to your journey depending on the day and time. But are there really enough detractions in the Seoul metropolitan area to justify one ranking below Detroit, the largest municipal bankruptcy filing in U.S. history? I spoke with another researcher who also worked on the report to find out. My name is Eric Tellepson and I am currently an analyst at the Economist Intelligence Unit based in Hong Kong, where I conducted research about it. And I've also lived in many of these cities, particularly Asian cities, um, that we have ranked in this year's report. So Asia in general um, did, did fairly well. So if we're looking at Asian ex-Australian cities, Tokyo placed the highest at 15th place. Osaka placed 17th. And then moving a bit further down the index, Hong Kong was 46th place, Singapore in 49th place, and Taipei placed 60th. As someone who previously um, has lived in Seoul, I would say that Seoul's placement um, as the 58th most livable city in the world, one below Detroit, uh, is rather surprising. But in all things with this report, we always have to go back to the, the numerous factors that we're looking at. So the factor that hurt Seoul's ranking the most uh, was essentially stability. And in this case, as we've seen from the past week's events, that is largely due to the unresolved conflict with North Korea. And so Seoul's ranking in other areas has been very high. So for example, they score very well in such things as education and infrastructure and along with the K-pop wave, they are also increasing their, their cultural score. But due to the continued geopolitical tension on the border, they were marked down. Seoul is in the top half of Asian cities that are ranked on our index, um, and is still within the top half of the total cities measured in the index. For Seoul to move up in the rankings, the other area besides instability, which is, which is obviously beyond uh, anyone's direct influence right now, would be things such as healthcare uh, and culture and environment. So in healthcare, Seoul scores very well for provision of healthcare, but some of the public health indicators are low. Um, and for Seoul, some of, of the cultural indicators um, for access to certain things still scores lower than other cities in Asia. And finally, for a different perspective, I spoke with a partner of Reurbanist, a company that works in Seoul with many of the factors used in the report, and asked them how they rated Seoul's livability. My name is Mark Sim. Our company is an urban planning firm that specializes in doing retail market analysis as well as generic market analysis that mixes urban planning and, and more economic issues together. I'm a Canadian citizen, but I'm Korean by blood. And I had the fortune to live in Korea for about three years, work for a Korean company, and attend Seoul National University. I don't think it's a real legitimate uh, ranking, mostly because I feel like a lot of times these ranking indexes look at 
the cities from a very different cultural context. But I do see why, I mean, there are still mandatory army service. The pressure to get into one of the top three universities is incredibly high. GDP per capita is not nearly as high as Canada or the U.S. And, you know, professional wages are not nearly as high as if you're working in Europe, London, or, or you know, anywhere else in the world. Just the way uh, foreigners are integrated, you know, even from an infrastructure perspective. So it's very difficult for, for non-Korean nationals. I mean, I'm fortunate, whereas I have an F-class visa, but for non-people who don't have an F-class visa, it is difficult to, to get integrated, even if they want to. If there's an, a sincere desire for people to become Korean citizens, they don't have much support from a government perspective to do that. Uh, I have friends who are sincerely considering staying in Korea, but for them to be able to get that visa class, that immigration status is, is, is quite difficult for them. So I can see how uh, from a, you know, a, I guess a double perspective where, yes, a modern city, but has a really low livability index. I don't think it's necessarily lower than Detroit, but comes back to historical context. The city of Seoul, as we know today, is only maybe 40, 50 years old, if that. Um, Tokyo, Beijing, Hong Kong have been around for much longer uh, in a more modern sense than Seoul has. So I always tell people Seoul's more or less stuck in the 60s and 70s in terms of, I guess, the maturity and the level of growth that's occurred. And there's a lot more that could happen. It's still a maturing city and, and definitely a maturing country overall. For KoreaFM.net, I'm Chance Storland.